Welcome to Bootlegged Innovations with your host, John Schultz. Each week, we show you how to make your business enterprise more efficient with proven techniques that will help you spend less, break less, and make more. Now, here is John Schultz. Welcome to Episode 5 of Bootlegged Innovations, uh, where our mission statement is we bridge the gap between the needs of the business and the ability of the workforce to execute in a secure and resilient environment. Uh, I want to start off this week's show by once again thanking my guests uh, from last week. Uh, The centerpiece of last week's show, which was entitled Overall Equipment Effectiveness, Necessary but Not Sufficient, uh, we learned a lot about flow and how it is actually the unifying theory behind all continuous improvement methodologies such as theory of constraints, Lean, Six Sigma, time motion studies, and many of the other tools. And we actually was able to factor in one of my favorite quotes from George Palasso, where he says that all benefits will relate related to speed of flow of materials and information. So without flow, you don't actually get any benefit. Uh, this is week 11. Actually, I just closed out. That's not true. I just closed out week 11 of confinement, of home confinement. I haven't actually been on the road since February the 12th. Uh, this is starting... Week 12, uh, many of you that uh, have your mics turned up, can pro- your uh, headphones turned up, can probably already hear the roosters, uh, Ricky uh, and Silver, my two co-hosts in the background, one of my good friends, uh, Rod Reinhold, actually told me that uh, there they are again. The roosters chiming in is the most insightful portion of my show, so our audio engineer actually sent me instructions on how to mic a chicken, uh, and I shared that on a LinkedIn post Uh and uh, getting headshots taken of the two roosters so that they can just officially become co-hosts. If you can't beat them, join them. Uh, so let's talk about a little bit about what we got on the to-done list from last week. Uh, number one is we are working on several projects with Hewlett Packard Enterprises and their Reopening America campaign. Uh, we have been working with manufacturing, airports, restaurants, banks, and ballparks. It's just been a really interesting uh to learn about all of the challenges that organizations are having in figuring out how they can actually safely uh, reopen their businesses uh, and then eventually get back to, uh, to the new normal. Uh, we also, uh, one of the last week's guests was Mr. John Oskins, the CEO of Sage Clarity, Bootleg Advisors, and John Oskins uh, officially inked uh, our agreement to uh, to be able to make his Sage Clarity platform kind of the centerpiece of our packaging intelligence offering. Uh, We also signed up some amazing uh, additional independent bootleggers. Uh, And if you go to the bootleg.life website now, you will see a page dedicated to the podcast. So in addition to being able to go to the Voice America site, uh, and see this uh, and listen to this show directly. You can also go to the uh, bootleg website. And so we got that done on the to-do list, uh, got it from a, a to-do list to the to-done list uh, this week. Uh, we're also going to start pushing up uh, on many of the shows. I've been making references to white papers and benchmark studies, and we're going to start loading some of that content up there. It's not up there yet, so be patient with me, but we will move that to the to-done list. Uh, very, very, uh, very, very soon. Uh, just before introducing my guests, every week I start with sharing something about myself or a favorite quote. And uh, this one, believe it or not, actually comes from my ex-wife, uh, who once told me, actually not once, she frequently told me that she could agree with me, but then we would both be wrong. And I just that particular quote uh, still just resonates with me today. Uh, so, uh, the uh, the thoughts and and, and uh, the thoughts that are shared on this show uh, you can agree you may or may not agree with me but again my ex wife would say I could agree with you but then we'd both be wrong. Uh, this week's topic uh, is actually on the workforce of the future, and other than college football, it is probably one of my favorite topics to talk about, uh, just because I fundamentally believe that workforce development and uh, in general uh, has been underfunded uh, for a number of years in the United States, uh, underappreciated. And now with 70% of employers talking about the fact that they're going to have to retool and upskill up to 70 to 80% of their employees over the next decade, 
uh, we're having to approach this from all aspects. There is a societal and educational responsibility. There is an employer responsibility. And there is a personal responsibility uh, that everyone needs to take in their own upskilling journey. And this week we have three absolutely amazing guests uh, that we are going to be featuring on the show that kind of bring it to us from those kind of three different avenues, uh, society, personal, and employer-based. Uh, we're going to be referencing a study that studies that were done by the National Association of Manufacturers, the Brookings Institute, and the World Economic Forum. Uh, and uh, it's going to be a really, really interesting show. Just remember that for every dollar of manufacturing output, an additional dollar eighty-nine of economic value is created. That every direct manufacturing job creates an additional two and a half indirect jobs. And perhaps most staggering, between now and 2028, uh, we will need to fill 4.6 million jobs in manufacturing. And right now, we believe that we're going to come up about 53% short of that. And that by 2028, have 2.4 million jobs that we just simply cannot staff. $454 billion risk to the, to the GDP, which is part of what makes this conversation so important. Combine that with the fact that between 2015 and 2018, it actually takes 33% more time to actually staff an open position for skilled trades uh, inside of manufacturing. So with that, I'm going to get on to, uh, to my guests. Uh, my first guest, I actually uh, met through the work that she was doing with one of our critical content suppliers uh, for workforce intelligence, and that uh, supplier is Pelocity and their parent company, Assessment Technology Group. Uh, the more I get to know about Dr. Blaylock, just the more impressed I become. She has dedicated two decades of leadership and service to higher education, nonprofits, social justice advocacy across the nation. Uh, she has facilitated and developed corporate training for companies and schools, heavily involved in, uh, in trade schools and community colleges. And uh, her name is Dr. Jennifer Blaylock. And uh, Dr. Blaylock, could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Well, thanks, John, and bootleggers out there. Happy Monday to everyone. Like you, John, this is one of my favorite topics. And having had really the privilege of spending my career in higher education, I've always had a deep and abiding appreciation for how transformational access to quality and affordable higher education is. Really just over the last decade have I come to appreciate how critical it is that education and workforce readiness and employability have to be completely aligned and in symmetry and reflect a partnership between public and private. If we are going to not only meet the, the labor demand of high demand jobs and all those statistics that you shared, but most importantly, if we're going to fulfill our mission, and that mission is really not just educating, but empowering our students of all ages to realize their full employability potential and to power their lives with socioeconomic mobility so that they can narrate what that next chapter looks like and take full advantage of our, our cap of capitalism and of all the opportunities that our economy provides them. So I'm excited to be here and talk about something that I know the whole panel is extremely passionate about as well. So thanks for having me. No, thanks for, thanks for joining us, Dr. Blaylock. I think it's uh, absolutely critical that we recognize that for the workforce of the future, uh, there's whole portions of our society that have been isolated from workforce opportunities and that if we want to, uh, we need to figure out how to bring them into the new economy and how to transform people and how to get a higher percentage of people above that Alice index, not just the poverty level, but the Alice index so they actually have a livable income. And let's face it, when we're talking about careers in tech and we're talking about careers in manufacturing, those are some of the best paying jobs that we have. And so uh, the work that you've done in this area is just absolutely amazing. And the more that you and I talk, uh, the more I'm blown away by uh, what, all you've, what all you've done with the outreach programs that you've been engaged in. My second guest has a tendency to dive into things head first. Uh, and she even has a, a childhood nickname that goes along with it that I will allow her to, uh, to tell that, uh, that story to the audience as part of her introduction. Mm, uh, I, met, I met Kelly 
through the Refinery of the Future Project, an amazing initiative down in Texas where they, instead of just having um, some little use cases that never scaled, uh, some very insightful leadership teams said, you know what, we want to show that uh, this whole industry 4.0 thing can be done. It can be done at scale and it can be done across multiple use cases. And Kelly and her team really helped that thing uh, get to the point that it could scale by creating something that's effectively referred to as the book of life. Uh, and uh, I just, uh, the other thing that uh, as I got to know Kelly through that work that we were doing together, uh, she introduced me to an amazing non-for-profit uh, that she is intimately involved in uh, that has historically been known as Gen Yes, as now I just learned is changing their name to Yes, uh, and that person is Kelly Ireland. Kelly, could you please introduce yourself to the audience, uh, a little bit about tackling things head first, and, uh, and a little bit about, uh, about, about, about your Yes movement. Absolutely. So thank you so much. Hi, bootleggers. Just really honored to be on this podcast with John and this esteemed team. Um, I'm, as he said, the founder and CEO of CB Technologies, a company I've been leading for 19 years, and I'm passionate about technology, have been since high school. So this is my foray in. And uh, the little story that John talked about is I am one of seven children. Uh, when I was two, I had three older sisters, um, very close in age. I had one younger brother that maybe was not quarreling quite yet. And my sisters used to pick on me a little bit. Uh, my father was telling me I'd be teased and they'd bully me. And my dad said, honey, one day you had enough and you reared back and you bent over and stuck your head and you rammed each of them in the stomach, you knocked them over and they never bugged you again. <laughs> so John said, so my dad called me Buffalo Bill and he nicknamed me Buff. So to my father, I was Buff the rest of my life, um, the rest of the, his life with me. Um, so Jen, yes, um, this has now, as you said, been changed to yes, which is youth and educators succeeding an amazing program developed by Dr. Dennis Harper. Um, Dennis has well over 20 years of leading um, Gen Yes, and now Yes, um, always been a dedicated um, and very devoted ed tech leader. It's made it, made it his life mission to get technology in K through 12. Um, he's personally watched how the schools and communities have struggled bridge the digital divide and um, he along with all the rest of us that support this program believe that developing these student tech leaders um, I think it's fourth grade through 12th um, is the solution and, and if you think about how technical our kids are anyway why would you not um, look upon them to be the ones that are in the schools supporting the schools teachers administrators other students um, taking that technology and then utilizing that in a program to get them into the workforce afterwards. I am just, the more that I learn about Gen Yes and the ability to actually use the students to drive the digital transformation that needs to happen in the classroom uh, is just such a brilliant business model. And the fact that they not only work on the technical skills, but through that program, they also learn about the soft skills. Yep. Uh, and become job ready. Uh, it is uh, it has just been really gratifying uh, to to learn about the the amazing work that uh, that you and your team have done there. My third guest and I go way way back. Uh, he has way too many stories about me, and I have a few about him. Uh, so we can hold those over each other's heads to a certain extent. Uh, Tim is somebody that I consider to be both a very close friend an amazing mentor. Uh, it was through Tim that I really began to understand uh, the importance of craft skills and craftsmanship. It was through Tim that I re realized that educational curriculum for occupations doesn't just happen, that there's something called job and task analysis that actually has to be performed for it to be meaningful and for it to uh, be more than just a knowledge transfer uh, so that you actually get into knowledge, skills, and abilities. Um, and so uh, my third guest on the show, I like to refer to him as kind of the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Mr. Tim Dutton. Uh, could you please uh, 
introduce yourself to the audience and a little bit about what you're currently doing with uh, Reliability Solutions. Sure. Thank, thanks, John. And yes, the stories are probably about even, I think. But anyway, <laughs> so I, I'm a reliability guy um, and I'm uh, honored to be in, in such, such uh, good company here regarding the, the, this, this whole subject. Because at the end of the day, um, it's human behavior. And I've been doing reliability for 40, 50 years or so and been directly on the front line of that. And it doesn't matter how well you design the machine, how well you assemble it, manufacture it, install it, um, or, or any of that stuff. If, if human beings at the end of the day don't behave the right way, uh, we don't operate it properly, we don't maintain it correctly, um, we don't install it properly, then at the end of the day, you lose reliability and you lose your manufacturing. So, you know, I, I've been involved in teaching people about how to do all this stuff, adults, of course, um, uh, for, for, for a long time. And, and really, it's, it's, it doesn't matter at the end of the day how, how much classroom training you have. It all has to end up at some form of task. And so if you're going to build that type of learning environment, then you've really got to start at what you want the people to be able to do. What are the tasks they need to perform and then work backwards? And so that's really what I do at Reliability Solutions. Obviously, I teach 20, 30 classes a year, at least probably on a variety of different engineering reliability subjects. But I'm also um, on the hook for, for most of our product development, whether that's live training. But I also, um, in, in recent years, have been doing a lot more of the digital stuff because I believe that when we talk about the scale of what we need to accomplish in the next 10 years, as all of these skill technicians require to get the new people up to speed, that just doesn't scale to live training. It's going to be extremely hard to, to be able to cover that with just live, live training. So we, we've got to start finding exciting ways to sort of blend that, that approach. So I'm glad to be here. No, it's great to have you. And so for this week's show, of all the things I read in preparation and reread for this week's show, there's a study by the Brookings Institute uh, that I'm going to use to kind of outline the flow of this week's show because they outlined a six-step process for end-to-end reskilling journey. Uh, and I want to kind of step our, our, our guests through that end-to-end reskilling journey and leverage their subject matter expertise and experience on each one of those. I'm going to start with Dr. Blaylock. Uh, Dr. Blake, you and I talked on multiple occasions about how both of us uh, kind of grew up with, without uh, the, necessarily uh, an overwhelming professional uh, mentor in our, in our lives at home. Uh, I have 11 people that I specifically look back on my life and could say that if it hadn't been for those individuals, I would not only not be where I am today, but I might not even be here today. Uh, and so step one of this journey um, that you have spent the last 20 years passionately serving, and that is encouraging user entry. Can you touch on some of the programs that are in place and how important it is, not just for kids, but also for underserved adults to be lifted up and ex- be, just be exposed to what's even possible? Well, I think that that's something really right there, just the simple awareness. You know, we often look at why do young people emulate or aspire to be a celebrity or a professional athlete, but we have to look at the access and the commercialization of those particular fields, right? They see the glamour, they see the glory, and so they're exposed to that every day on their social media, on their television screen. So what they don't have is an abundance of exposure to high-tech science, you know, STEM, STEAM uh, functions. You know, I often tease uh, my colleagues and say, look at your business card. Is the title on there what you said when you were five years old or in fifth grade and said, someday I'm going to be a such and such? Did you dream of that? And of course, John, you've always had a vision. You've always known that there were great things in your future, but could you articulate them? And could you also then, once you articulated it, break it down into steps and know how to hold yourself accountable, how to get all of the necessary resources? So when we look at that that currency, if you will, of understanding how to adequately prepare for and be volatile, be agile, be flexible, that it's not just necessarily one particular job title, but it's a career cluster. It's a career family. 
that you can earn and learn skills that will make you really attractive in lots of different areas. And so there are some wonderful nonprofits out there. It's one of the reasons the Pelocity platform is so powerful because by students taking an assessment, and that's a globally uh, over five decades proven assessment tool that doesn't just look at what we like to do, because of course we're naturally going to gravitate toward the things that we're attracted to, that we like, that sound fun. What we don't appreciate, and you talked about that task analysis and understanding and appreciating, really breaking down what a career means, right? I'll give you a, a quick example. NCIS, I think there's one in every city on, on television, right? So forensic science and all that kind of thing looks super glamorous, right? I know a couple of forensic scientists. Their lives do not look like <laughs> any of those episodes, whether it's NCIS, Orleans, or Los Angeles, nothing like that. Okay, doesn't mean that being a forensic scientist or a criminologist or any of those things isn't exciting and fun. It just means that our perception is not always the reality. And so by connecting our students to assessments that say, hey, based on your decisions, your knowledge, skills and abilities, your choices, how you make those decisions, how you process information, what you value and you prioritize here are knowledge, skills, and abilities in positions or career families that align with that. And then it, it really challenges you to say, oh, wow, I wonder why I was aligned or connected with that particular occupational outlook position or career field. And so Pelocity does that really, really well. It's what really the only, uh, only platform in the game that does that. So that's an extreme, uh, you know, extremely valuable game changer, in my opinion, because it's exposing and really thrusting students and young people forward to say, open your eyes a little bit, see what else is out there. I have to tell you in my career, I, there were so many students who would come in to see me and say, I want to get into healthcare. And then we would unpack it and say, well, why do you want to get into healthcare? It's a great area, great field. Well, because my parents told me I'll be able to get a job and I know that I'm going to make a good salary. Or I would hear students say, I want to be a teacher because I'll get my summers off. All of those are logical, reasonable, rational decisions uh, or ways that we make choices. However, do you like kids? Uh, if you're going to be in healthcare, do you, are you comfortable with the sight of blood? Are you comfortable being around sick people, right? I mean, we've certainly, uh, you know, infectious disease, all of those kind of things. Could you be a frontline essential worker or would you rather be with your family during times of crisis? I mean, we've seen that up close and personal. And so perhaps you still want to be in healthcare, but maybe you want to be uh, the president of a hospital, right? Maybe you've got business acumen versus, you know, that general quality care. So there are a lot of wonderful programs out there. Year Up is another one where, again, not only do we have students who perhaps have the academic acumen, but now how do I translate that into professional skills? How do I know how to report to work on time? Office politics. Um, you know, how do I know how to communicate with Kelly and Tim? And I'm upset with them. You know, they said something in a meeting that I didn't agree with. Is that okay? Can I express my discontent? Understanding how to, you know, have positive approaches to communication, all of those different people call them soft skills. I call them power skills because you simply cannot succeed without that ability. And then the other piece is resilience and grit. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a pet peeve of mine that we are consistently saying what our varying generations don't have or don't bring to the table. And my perspective or framework in life is very asset focused. What do the future generations, and of course, there's more generations in the world of work now than there ever have been in history. What do we all bring to the table and what can we learn from one another? Because guess what? My generation, we didn't have it all figured out. And we need to be open to learning with those, uh, those future generations, right? It's a give and take. And so I think programs like Europe, I think you've got the PACE program for girls. You've got the Mayor's Youth at Work Partnership, which is in the city of Jacksonville, but in many other uh, cities and states throughout the United States through the uh, League of Cities and, and Mayor's uh, Council. We've got to expose people. And I think, John, you and I both participated when we were youth. I participated in the Job Training and Partnership Act. You know, I, I would have been a kid uh, growing up below the poverty level who would have got a minimum wage job. And I did. I, I wore a Whopper suit at Burger King, <laughs> a lot of cool things. But I also got the opportunity to work in an office 
and understand. I, I still don't know how to use the fax machine, and I, op- I admit that freely. But I was exposed to wow, there are jobs. These are this is what a white collar job is, or blue collar job. I didn't know all of those distinctions or differentiations, nor did I know what kind of degree I should pursue to be one of those people. Right. So I think we've really got to leverage and work with our, our, our high schools who are doing a great job with their career and technical education, but they need those supplemental partners and they need mentors, not just mentors who are going to help you with life skills, but with career skills. And they're going to be those possibility mentors, possibility models. Uh, Tanika Hughes, who is, uh, um, she's a, a, a local um, newscaster here in Jacksonville, she said that she wants to be a possibility model. And I absolutely That's love great. that because she grew up in a very humble beginnings, a great mentor, wonderful servant leader. But she said that's her goal is to show people what's possible. And I think we all have that responsibility, whether it's one-on-one, talking to a youth or being part of some of these programs. Uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters also has a program as well, uh, connecting people with business and industry. There's a lot of business and industry in our community, for example, but do we even know as adults, what do they do there? You know, what's an average salary there? Is it just for engineers, for example, at Jacobs Engineering? No, there's people in human resources. There's people in all these other areas and you could be a part of this great company. So helping students start to unpack what it means to be a professional, and then what the vast array of opportunities are is critical. And that's why I'm so glad there's so many different programs out there. That's awesome, Dr. Bailock. Thanks for uh, summarizing that because, Kelly, it leads us really nicely into the next step of the journey, according to the Brookings Institute uh, and their model for this end-to-end uh, retooling of the, uh, of, the, of the workforce. And that is about building self-efficacy. And I really believe that a lot of what Gen Yes and Higher Pathways and the other initiatives that you've been intimately involved in is really about building that self-efficacy. And so could you go into that a little bit for the audience? Absolutely. And you're right. Um, When you look at Gen Yes, they start from the very beginning because when you get kids into technology, the first thing you want to do is start with a curriculum that jumps into safety online. it doesn't matter if the kids have been online or not. It's a great place to start. And then you get into ethics. How do you be, you know, how, online, how do you be ethical? How do you be ethical within supporting systems within the school district? It was pretty funny because one of the lessons I learned while working with this group was I said, well, you have a bunch of kids on technology. Uh, don't you worry about them hacking and, and, and you know, what are the repercussions? And Dr. Harper was like, oh, Kelly, don't worry about it. The adults aren't half as tough on the students as the students are on themselves. They will double down on these kids if they do anything that are outside the parameters of, you know, what's acceptable. So, but it, it you know, it's a great lead into that. A very dir- diverse curriculum on Gen yes. And when you bring in higher pathways, that's an intersection of when you look at project-based learning, you look at actually interacting with corporations and you look at the soft skills, or I love Dr. Blaylock saying the power skills of create creativity, you know, critical thinking, communication, collaboration. We interviewed tons of corporations and we asked them, what do you see is lacking from candidates that you're trying to hire? And first and foremost were those four skills. These kids could know everything about a topic, but could they communicate effectively? Could they collaborate? Could they do any? They couldn't. And they said, those are, you you know, some of them said, we don't hire anybody. We don't care if they have the capability out of high school or college. If um, we won't hire them right out of school, we make them go to another company first because that's, we've found helps them develop communication. We'll take them at their second job, never at their first. Well, it's kind of our mission to have it be the first job where they have those skills. And one of my favorite stories, and this is more about something that was brought to a student that, that was one of the student tech leaders. This program, at, now they're doing you know boot camps virtually, but before they would do a boot camp. Well, the state of New Mexico, when you think about median income, it's probably one of the lowest in the United States. These kids, we, are, we wanted to help them have opportunities 
that went well outside of you know their state borders, things that would open them to all kinds of opportunities. Uh, the governor was very much behind it. We started with 10 schools. Paul Romero was the CTO of the largest school district in Albuquerque. Um, he was a massive champion. He was attending along with 10 other schools. So they took two students and two counselors that would be responsible for the GenYes program within the school. Because it's critical that you have mostly teachers that are there to support the programs, support the kids, and help to grow it and expand it throughout the school. Um, I never heard who this particular teacher was from one of the elementary schools, but she had tagged a fifth grade girl to be one of the two students attending this boot camp. So you have 20 kids there. You have this one fifth grader. Turned out her story was she was homeless. She lived in a car with her mom. She had no friends. She was a wallflower. She went to school. She did her thing. She was bilingual, um, but had no friends, you know, just really was kind of an, an outcast. This brilliant teacher somehow knew that this child had a capability. Um, I wish I knew who it was because I would have run up and embraced them for what they did. This child went in, they went through, it's a day and a half program. Uh, there's a project that they give the students and they had them go out and create a presentation using some video like off a camera and stuff and create this presentation. No one really knew, you know, what this child would come back with. Well, from what Paul was telling me with tears streaming down his eyes was this girl came back with a bilingual, take your, you know, knock your socks off presentation that everybody, including the older students, sat back like, wow, blew their minds. Turned out she was extremely bright, very technical, um, was able to showcase it in this in a way that she wasn't afraid, she did her presentation. It wasn't personal, her speaking, it was recorded. She got to present it. It turned out that when she returned to school, she was now the student tech leader. She was a leader that was embraced. She, everybody looked at her as, you know, kind of one of those people that you go to now. They said it completely, utterly changed their life, her life. And Paul's looking at me, as you can imagine, crying, going, how do we, how do, we do this for 1,000 students? Yeah, that's amazing. How do we do this for 10,000 students? No, that's, fa that's fantastic. What a great story. Uh, and it kind of leads us into the third portion of the journey, which is navigating careers and systems. It kind of goes back to that possibility uh, mentor that uh, the Dr. Blaylock was talking about earlier. One of the things that really blew me away about the Pelocity platform when I first got engaged with it is that all there, it turns out the U.S. economy, whether it be public sector, private sector, or not-for-profit, is actually made up of 1,110 careers. And all of those 1,110 careers have been mapped to knowledge, skills, and abilities required to be in them. And the number of transferable knowledge and skills is just unbelievable uh, to to me for for somebody to be able to take an assessment and then very quickly see all of the realm of possibilities in the roadmap and to be able to visit the one-stop site right there within the Pelocity application and say, oh, well, that's what my career might look like. That's my career path. That's my earning potential. That's my benefits. That's the unemployment rate uh, within that and the placement rate within that career is just really, really cool. I want to tie this back, Tim, to uh, to workforce development in the manufacturing space and, and, and skilled trades. And the studies that have been done by people like the National Associations of Manufacturers. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the viability of what you're seeing of careers in manufacturing today and what kind of, uh, what kind of lifestyle people are actually able to live whenever they actually are able to land those types of careers in manufacturing? Yeah, and I think the it's it's a, the classic image issue. I mean, when most people think manufacturing and industry, they're thinking the dark, dirty, dusty gates of uh, of the of the cotton, the the, the woolen mills in northern England, in you know, a century or so ago, and and nothing is really could be further from the truth in, in modern day manufacturing. Um, those those days, it's a whole brave new world right now, uh, in in terms of that, and there's been tremendous advances in some respects i think we're we're struggling and, and the reason we, we've got the gap and the reason we're losing so much in skilled trades is 
probably decisions that were made by probably my parents' generation, you know, 50, 60 years ago now. Um, and the social programming that went with that that said, if you don't go to college and get yourself a degree, then, then you, you basically, you know, you, you, you're just not quite there. Oh, you didn't get the right grade, so you're just going to have to go to tech school, um, which is actually now coming full circle because the, this type of career, this type of jobs are in high demand. And as you said off the top of the show, John, with the huge percentage of retirees within the next five to 10 years, there's, there's a big gap developing. Uh, the problem is how do you fill that gap? Because right now, you know, if, you, if we look at the traditional way of educating um, people in those careers, it's a lot of experience-based education. Yes, you have to have some technical knowledge and some skills. You also, Kelly, uh, absolutely have to have great communication skills. doesn't matter how good you are technically at doing anything in the manufacturing world. If you can't communicate your success, communicate the results, then it'll all end up uh, uh, in, in tears. So... We, we've got to have those skills, but the, the, the traditional model is no longer viable. There's just not enough time left. It would take, you know, six to eight years. You know, my, I remember my great uncle Jack, who was a machinist at Rolls-Royce. Uh, he served an eight-year apprenticeship um, just to be able to go work on a Rolls-Royce. Yeah, and apprenticeship programs just don't are just not there anymore. Exactly, uh, in, in general, and so that really uh, brings you know a lot of the challenge that I know that uh, this summer. Uh, National Association of Manufacturers had planned on doing an amazing outreach program uh, called Creators Wanted, where they had hoped to start the process of touching uh, 600,000 kids in different in 25 different states uh, to expose them into an immersive environment to be able to get them to understand what careers in manufacturing look like today and to get 600,000 kids uh, and their families excited about potential for career manufacturing that, uh, that quite frankly, uh, again, if these high paying jobs go unstaffed, you not only have the big hit to the GDP, but uh, there's some of the few careers that actually get people above kind of that Alice index. Uh, Kelly, before we move on to step four uh, on this, this whole step three with regards to uh, really understanding navigating careers and systems, You've had also an interesting experience through the Gen Yes movement of the role that big tech has been willing to come in and play and the types of careers that uh, mm -hmm. some of these kids are able to come straight out and be eligible for, graduate with certifications in, in Cisco and Oracle, et cetera. And so could you just expand upon that a little bit for the audience? Because I just, I felt that it was really interesting on the one end, you've got really good paying manufacturing jobs. On the other end, you got these robust careers in tech. And I thought it'd be uh, remiss if I didn't have you touch on the tech piece. Yeah, the tech piece, it mostly centers around Cisco. Cisco's, the Cisco Foundation has been a supporter of Gen Yes for several years. And um, at first it was helping Dennis with doing some videos, getting some exposure, helping him to be better known throughout the industry. Um, but another thing he started doing, especially I believe it was in a, one of the school districts in Southern California where they really grasped on to the program and to the point of, I think a few years ago, the high school that was it had implemented Gen Yes actually had a lottery program in order to get into the class. They had five or six periods of Gen Yes. Um, so many students wanted in, they put it on a lottery. And when those students during the period that they were doing in their Gen Yes class, if they weren't doing TAPS, which is assisting teachers or students, they were online taking Cisco certification classes. That's so they were allowing access to the curriculum. And they ended up with kids that graduated and were able to go right into Cisco um, network technology you know, careers right straight out of high school. I mean, and, and like with Tim, I mean, can you imagine these kids that if we gave them better exposure across technology, all of the OEMs and said, hey, you know, here's your captured audience during a period in, in your high school class. And when they're not helping other students, they can tap into your certification classes or coding classes or anything, you know, web development, whatever it is, that they could start getting their interaction then and build out a portfolio. I mean, I can't imagine a better way. 
That is absolutely fantastic. Uh, and that leads us to the next step in the journey, Dr. Blaylock, which is assisting with economic and social barriers. Uh, so many times uh, people that are trying to get that, that, that hand up as opposed to that handout uh, are confronted with just economic and social barriers that, uh, you know, based on my upbringing uh, and the way I grew up, I know how important some of those, uh, how big some of those barriers can feel at times, uh, how they can wait on a family, how they can wait on an individual. Uh, you spent a good portion of your career focusing on address organizations that actually address uh, confronting some of those uh, economic and social barriers kind of head on the way Buff would. Uh, as I got Kelly to smile on the video, that's good. <laughs> uh, if you could, could you just highlight some of the, 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 the biggest challenges with uh, the economic and the social barriers and why every employer needs to care in order to get to that workforce in the future that they need to be a viable economic engine. Absolutely. So I can't imagine one of the more, you know, the bigger revelations than, than we've had than that right now in, you know, our immediate 48-hour really turnaround from face-to-face -face education to digital learning. And in doing that, all of our gaps and vulnerabilities were exposed, particularly how deep the digital divide is. So, you know, for example, uh, my daughter who just graduated from college last Saturday, she, uh, you know, she marvels at the fact I didn't have a telephone when I was a teenager. So not even, you know, a cell phone. I didn't have a home phone. Blows her mind. First of all, why would you have a home phone, right? But I think about if technology and the internet were something that was prevalent at that point in time, and I, I couldn't go to libraries or have the good old encyclopedia that was outdated that we had and we got at a garage sale, how would I have competed, right? So in today's world, think about what our students were faced with, what our school districts were faced with in terms of continuing to deliver education. And there was a really compelling article in the New York Times about that. Um, we've done great things in terms of getting access to uh, different colleges, different universities, but it was a story about a young lady actually from Jacksonville attending a small private liberal arts college up north, and she was there on a full scholarship. Well, when COVID-19 hit and all of the schools had to send everybody scurrying home, she came home, her parents own a food truck. And uh, of course, groceries, food distribution were immediately impacted. So not only is she trying to help her family maintain their, you know, their method of living, their, their way to support themselves, she also has to start balancing, how am I going to have consistent access to the internet? How am I going to do my research? How am I going to balance my classes while I'm helping the family business? Because, you know, all of those kinds of things, right? So just incredible. And then they showed one of her peers who was attending and, you know, the lavish home and privilege that she experiences. Uh, is there equal access? I'm not sure, right? So we've really got to look at that. I've heard it said before, we can't even think about Bloom's taxonomy, which in education, you know, are these different domains of learning and understanding. If we're not even off the first rung of Maslow's hierarchy of need, think about that for a minute. No, that's fantastic. If you don't even have basic point. shelter, food to eat, safety and security, and you don't know where you're going to be tomorrow night, what, what is that like? You know, uh, a school here in Jacksonville, one of the elementary school principals shared with me, how can she hold kids accountable for wearing their uniform when, uh, you know, or where's their homework when a young person will say, well, I, I haven't, you know, I haven't been at that house since Monday and we've been spending the night at different places, right? So these young people who are bright and energetic and want to pursue careers, then you know, live in multi-generational households. Um, they have, you know, a lot of housing instability, food instability. Um, there's a great program in uh, Jacksonville called uh, I'm a Star Foundation. Betty Burney is a great mentor of mine. Um, she really works to help those teenagers who are homeless because there are a percentage, a high percentage of students in high school who are high performing and want to start thinking about things like college and careers except guess what? They don't know where they're going to spend the next night. They don't know how to, you know, buy their hygiene products, let alone their food. So we've really, as employers, got to provide uh, things like transportation, you know, uh, take your work at home or you have to have a laptop. 
Uh, I know a lot of people who don't even have internet. You know, they've got um, monthly limits on their access to their cell phone. Um, one young man that I've mentored who attends Reigns High School, his mom is a single mom. She's got three kids. She works from home. They are scurrying to use the internet. They don't have a ton of bandwidth. And now not only is her business and, and source of income being compromised, but the kids are all home and everyone's on the internet. It's this real, you know, balance. And so as employers, we've got to appreciate that not everyone has the privilege that we anticipate. We've also got to mentor each other, whether again, that's transportation issues. Um, Jacksonville's huge, right? Just using us as an example. Imagine, John, you know, you can't take a JTA bus everywhere. Right. And, and, and again, in a situation like this, can you, is it really conceivable to get an Uber or a Lyft every day? Is that even financially reasonable? Is it worth it to even work, right? So if we can find ways to creatively, and again, maybe work from home or remote work gives us that freedom and flexibility to help our young people who don't have, I mean, I didn't have my driver's license until I was think, I think I was 23. I didn't have a car, so what was the point, right? So again, helping them, uh, whether it's ride share or creating affordable housing opportunities. When we look at what attracts uh, people to work at Google, it's the quality of life and the culture, right? So if we can create engaging and supportive culture with ride share and, uh, you know, internet share or things that they can take home to help enrich their lives and then enrich their performance, even if it's professional clothing, all of those kind of things are critical for their success. Now, that's, you know, I'm actually getting been heavily involved in our local United Way with their 211 and the whole basic needs. And so it really gets down to also understanding what your why is and so whenever you sit there and you say, well, last year we provided 3.4 million meals in food deserts in, in a community, does that mean your next year's goal is 3.5 million or is it to eliminate those food deserts? How can you be taking care of basic needs and not provide for the digital divide where so many of your dollars are supposed to go to education and basic needs, but yet that student, as soon as they get done with that after school program, if they're available, if they're able to get in one, doesn't have basic need of being able to have access so that they can actually do their homework, prepare for exams, et cetera. So that's a great point. We're down to about five minutes or less left in the show. So I just want uh, the next couple of ones, we're not going to be able to spend as much time on as I would like. And what I may end up doing is, uh, is doing some uh, bonus footage of, uh, of, of the, the next couple of topics that we were going to, uh, to, to, att to attack. But I do want to go ahead and cover the last two steps. Uh, Tim, step five, I don't know if anybody is more qualified to address step five than you, uh, and that is providing good teaching and content. Uh, so much of what you've been doing over your career of doing this job and task analysis is boiled down to good content and good teaching, and you have identified that over the years of working with skilled tradespeople and operators that are performing autonomous maintenance, that there are about 450 core skills uh, that really people need to master in order to be able to do that. And it plays beautifully into the latest move in education, uh, whether it be nano degrees or micro credentialing. Uh, and you've been creating 450 bits and bytes. Uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about bits and bytes? Uh, and then we'll move on to step six. Yeah, again, it, it goes back to the challenge of how do we give experience that takes eight years to get to people in, in, in six months or less? Because we're facing this big crisis. So the concept here is that in order to accomplish a task successfully, you break that down into micro tasks and, and micro bits. If I can provide or we can provide you know, 60 seconds or less uh, or, or 90 seconds or less of, of sp task specific information, bits, is, bits of information, task specific, you only get the information you need to accomplish the task. Now, it doesn't replace the, the, the more traditional training, and that can come later. But right now, we can use this to actually get people to be able to, to, to work in, in, in manufacturing. One of the problems with manufacturing, of course, is you can't do that remotely. You, you pretty much have to get to the factory to be able to, 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 or the power plant, if you're going to keep the lights on, the electricity flowing. You've got to do that on site. So it's not something that we can do remotely. We've got to learn this and do this on the site. And these, the idea then is we bring the bits to the site. It, it comes in on your phone or whatever other device you have. Um, we can then build those little bits of information into what we call bytes, which are little small computer-based training because to be to be honest 
in my field or, or our field of manufacturing and engineering and reliability, the current offerings of online training are pretty ho-hum to say the best. It's, you yeah. know, look at the PowerPoint, turn the page, click the button and move on. So what we're trying to do is build more engaging type content and content that has an outcome. So at the end of your little bite of information, you are now required to go perform the task and then come back and report out. So you combine the, the benefits of a live training environment, but still be able to do this fr fr from a distance. And, and again, from a scaling perspective, it's doable in terms of the, the scale of what we have to accomplish within the next few years. So. So, so Kelly, that leads us into step six, which is sustaining support. And when it comes to, you know, a lot of what Tim was talking about, organizational brain drain, not having coaches and mentors, gets into kind of that connected frontline worker. And I know yep. that uh, we only have a couple minutes left in the show, but if you could take a little bit of time talking about your passion for that connected frontline worker, uh, perhaps even with just a story about how you combine that with your other passion uh, in, in the area of speedboating. Yeah. Um, when Tim was talking, Tim, we'll talk after this because what we're seeing, and especially with this pandemic, our connected worker solutions are, are just flying off the shelf because um, the, the one that John was talking about, um, I follow Formula One racing. My boyfriend is one of the drivers and one of his, you know, engine experts lives in Seattle, did not want to travel overseas, said, you know, I'm 75. I don't want to do it. This guy has a flip phone. He's, he's, he's technolo technologically challenged a bit. Um, we took the connected worker over with us. I had the, the team lead, put it on, stand in front of the engine. We put him in a virtual room, got uh, the engineer in Seattle connected. And he just sat there like, are you kidding me? Um, I feel like I'm standing there. He helped the team because it's a combination of engine, prop, and everything else. He actually was be able to help the team, Seattle to, I believe, that was uh, United Arab Emirates, also from China to Nashville, the race before that. This is remote expert making that combination. Like Tim said, you can't be there. Well, now you can be there, and you yeah. can mm -hmm. bring the expert in, and you can take that knowledge and transfer it across, you know, a very diverse workforce. So on bootlegged innovations this week, we managed to work in both the flip phone and the fax machine. Yeah. Nice. I, I, I didn't see either one of those coming. That is absolutely amazing that we were able to work both of those in. So just need to wrap up this week's show. Uh, next week's show will actually be a replay of week one because it is Memorial Day. The next show that we'll be bringing you uh, we'll be talking about the Reopening America campaign uh, and uh, some specific things around how you can leverage technology for uh, touchless entry, contact tracing, and really how Reopening America specifically applies in manufacturing. And until then, I would ask that you focus on moving your to-dos to to-dones and that above all else, you keep on bootlegging. Thank you so much to my guests and uh, look forward to uh, getting back with you with another live show on June 1. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bootlegged Innovations. Be sure to join John Schultz again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk again next week. 